KZSU Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate Architectural, this is Tom DiOro. Thank you, Shay. For our guest today, we want to welcome Juanita Salisbury, Ph.D. and principal of Juanita Salisbury Landscape Architecture, Elegantly Understated Landscapes. Today we'll be discussing the joy of investing in nature and the value landscape architecture can bring to our homes, communities, and businesses. Hello and welcome, Juanita. We're honored for you to be here today. Thank you for having me. Juanita, when do you think you began your your love of landscape architecture? Probably when I was a little girl. A little girl, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I originally uh, received a book on... Uh, gardening when I was about 11 years old, and I still have that book, which uh, which I discovered after looking through it uh, in my later years, discovering that it featured some of the uh, many other famous landscape architects like Thomas Church, um, Theodore Osmondson, people like that, and uh, I always found joy in that, and um, started actually gardening when I was probably about the same age and starting to design uh, gardens in places where we lived and just planting things and just kind of shaping up the outside without any permission. I would just do it. Where, where, where did you grow up? Um, I spent a lot of my uh, childhood in Oregon. Oregon. In a very rural area, so I had lots of access to nature. Yeah. Did you uh, try to impress anyone in your family about what, you've, uh, what you discovered or together or ideas that you see how you can make the forest even uh, a better forest? You know, I never really thought about uh, thinking that it was something that I would share with my family that, oh, this is something really cool. It's just places that we would play um, and just having uh, family members enjoy those spaces. It just seemed like a natural thing for me to do. Yeah. So you started at about 11 in the book. Do you still have the book? Yeah, you still have it. I still have the book. Your studio, your office. uh, It's in a place of honor. A place of honor. (laughs) So you have it framed or no? It's just a place of honor. It's in a readily accessible area, so I can grab it for comfort if I need to. (laughs) Comfort. Or inspiration, does it still provide it? It still does. Um, A lot of the um, sort of uh, projects that they would show the weekend transformation kinds of things, some of the illustrations, um, a lot of the uh, pictures are still very relevant. A lot of the um, designs actually were done in California. Yes, yes. In in California, uh, Mm -hmm. did did you have an an aspiration to be in California, or was it a a, a place that didn't matter, you just were enchanted by the (laughs) hotel? I spent a very early part of my childhood in California before I moved to Oregon, and um, I really think of those early years as as formative as well. Uh, I remember when we were um, 
kids, we would often get like Sunset Magazine, and so uh, that was always very intriguing for me, just to see the, the various uh, gardens that were shown in those magazines. And then the funny thing, when I finally moved back to the West Coast after going to school on the East Coast and living in other parts of the country, was when I landed back in California um, after so many years in 2002, was I lived just a few blocks from there. <laughs> I kind of looked at it as Mecca. <laughs> So you have a, a, a interesting, you have a PhD in, is it biopsychology? That's right. Okay, and how has that helped um, with the landscape architecture? I'm sure it has. My opinion is it's, it's everything, but maybe you have a different perspective on it. Well, it yeah. is everything. Uh, my PhD in biopsychology I got from the University of Florida, and <clears throat> I was trained as a scientist. And as a scientist, you're also trained to observe and for me, that's been key in terms of understanding how people behave in spaces and then making spaces that they can play out whatever behaviors that they want to engage in yeah. and that they want to, places that they want to be in. Yeah, did, did that inspire you to, uh, how'd you feel when you were uh, in, in, in going from getting your PhD? It was landscape architect in the, back, in the back of your mind? Was it something you said, I, I can't wait to do this? Or why did I do this? I mean, uh, well, I think that landscape architecture has always been in the back of my mind. Uh, in all the places that I've lived, I created gardens. You know, and that was a sign, right? I should have yeah. paid, been paying attention to that. Yeah, not all of us plant gardens in our minds. No, and <laughs> so every place that I lived, um, usually some uh, student-infused. Uh, dwellings of our apartment life, there would be no garden space, no plants. It would be like lawns and maybe empty flower beds. And I would take it upon myself to plant things. Um, and uh, by way of West Virginia University, years after getting my PhD, um, the opportunity arose where I could pursue another degree, which I really didn't want to do. Yeah. Why, why not? <laughs> Well, I was, I, no, I was old, or older. <laughs> I was, I had uh, got my PhD, uh, you know, did some postdoctoral work and, uh, you know, did some teaching at the university level. And then the big question, what next? Um, in those circumstances I found myself in, I uh, discovered that the opportunity to get a degree in landscape architecture presented itself and I thought long and hard about it and I had been designing gardens for people for a hobby um, for as long as I could remember. Yeah. So you did this as a hobby? Yes. In addition to your studies? Oh yes. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yes, I was always doing that and okay. <laughs> you know, now it's obvious this is what I should have been doing all along but Sometimes you need to have a PhD to discover that you're really oh, a, you? a landscape architect, yes. So I went back uh, at the age of 35, got the, the, the BSLA and uh, West Virginia University. And after the first day in studio, I'm sitting there, a 35-year-old in a classroom of 18-year-olds, and it just felt right. It did yeah. not feel like it was the wrong thing. It just, I just knew. And you knew was, then that I this, knew was, then. this was the field that you were going to... I knew then, and I've never looked back, never had any qualms about it, never uh, 
had any problems with, you know, thinking that this was beyond my capabilities. None of that. So everything, every part of that process was a joy to you. And it still is. It still is. It still is. Can you, so do you think, uh, do you, when, you, when you just walk around, do you think of how you can improve a space? Does it, uh, is that, that... Uh, You know, it happens all the time. Wherever I go, I, when I see things, I... All the I, time, not just sometimes, all it's, the time. It's my, okay. as I like to have called it in the past, my design brain never sleeps. Okay. And so I have this little voice in the back of my head always making comments about what I see. And sometimes I wish it would just stop. But um, I always can see room for improvement everywhere. Really? Um, even the things I have done. You know, it's like, oh, maybe I should have done it. Uh, I, I see things and, you know, whether it's um, uh, just a small tweak or a change of color, um, it never ends. I mean, it's con- it's for me, it's constant, and it can be a bit of a curse sometimes. How's it a curse? Because it, it never shuts up. It never, oh, really? Okay. It never shuts up, um, and so it's like a constant stream of design critique that's in the background. Um, and sometimes it's not. It, there's no verbal language connected to it. Sometimes it's just a gut reaction. Yeah. So. Um, I've learned to control it. Though. Oh, great! <laughs> now, how, being a, living in Palo Alto, have you seen any other any projects that you've done exclusively in Palo Alto or the area, or for city uses or purposes? Well, I do residential landscape architecture um, now. It's that's not exclusive. I do other kinds of landscape architecture, um, and in these spaces, I've designed in all kinds of styles for all kinds of different kinds of houses. Everything from to um, condos, to uh, Spanish colonial styles. So whatever style a client wants, I will install. Um, and other projects that I do, um, I'm really into uh, enhancing pollinator habitat as well. So I've uh, proposed to do some work like that and transform a space here in Palo Alto. Oh, please, tell me more about this. Okay. The... Um, there are places that are along roadsides, parkways, uh, parkway islands, um, that sometimes go underutilized. There's one very close to where I live, and um, it's uh, basically a big grassy area with a few trees, and it's kind of a, a, a desert. There are, no, there are no butterflies, no bees, nothing flying around. And after driving by this place for a couple of years, I thought, man, i got to do something about that listening to, again, the design critique that continuously keeps poking me. And so I gave the city a call and I said, uh, would you guys be interested in me designing a pollinator habitat for this area yeah. uh, of town on this, you know, it's not being really used for anything. Nobody walks their dog there, plays football, because it's, it's right next to the road. It's noisy, loud, and um, there's a bus stop, but people use that, but it's really not connected. And they said, sure, show us uh, so show us what you can come up with. And yeah. so um, designed a great pollinator habitat to provide uh, pollen and nectar basically all year long. So things that bloom early, mid, and late season. What's that, a pollen nectar? Pollen and nectar. Pollen, okay. Right, pollen for the protein, nectar for the carbohydrates. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think of pollinator habitat as a, a big buffet for the insects. And 
Um, well, here in California, we have 1,600 species of native bees, which is, I know, it's huge. Most people don't think about bees other than honeybees, which are not native to California. Um, and so we've got just uh, uh, this wonderful biodiversity that we should be supporting with this scale of green infrastructure, which is how I see pollinator habitat. Lots of opportunities in this town uh, for that kind of thing in places that are basically going to waste. And, you know, I mean, ivy growing in places, lawn, uh, you know, it could be so much more. Yeah, so you still see that when you say so much more, do you approach homeowners or cities or business parks with uh, proposed ideas that could enhance their, their space? Well, um, basically how I work as a landscape architect, I work with a contractor um, who does uh, installation of what I design, and he actually has clients... Um, coming to him and asking him for design. He doesn't design. I design, so he sends them to me. And then um, I enhance their space as much as I possibly can. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And that always includes pollination habitat as well as other um, cutting-edge accessories, I like to call them. Accessories. Yes. Elaborate a little bit more when you say accessories. Uh, Well, a good landscape for people to live in lets them live in it, um, you know, all day long, well into the evening. And as you know, here in California, when the sun goes down, it gets cold outside. A lot of people want to do fire pits. I don't Especially partic- in Northern California. Yes, I don't particularly like an open flame myself, but, um, you know, I will design those things. So those kinds of accessories uh, can go in. There's uh, heated furniture people can get that they can just plug in. Heated furniture. Heated furniture, yes. <laughs> and wonderful. So um, just uses a few watts of energy. So that's actually, I think, a better way to stay warm outside than a fire pit. That's my personal preference, and that's something I, I tell clients. I don't like open flame because people always stick their fingers in it. <laughs> well, marshmallows on, your, on the couch would be a little hard. But yeah. uh, th- that's that's interesting. So you suggest it, not right away, but do you, if they do discuss it, an outdoor environment, mm-hmm. uh, outdoor living space environment. Yes. You do suggest that those those options. So comfort's a big thing, and staying warm after the sun goes down is certainly a huge one. And then lighting, of course. And I'm always looking for the best uh, sort of cutting edge, low watt using lights that are really super easy to use. Because then, if you can, like LEDs, you can dim them down. Um, you can change the color. You know, you can. And some uh, brands control them with your smartphone. Makes it easy to enjoy the inside, the outside from the inside of the house. Excellent. You're listening to KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Our guest today is Juanita Salisbury, PhD and principal of Juanita Salisbury Landscape Architecture. And now at PSA, Direct Relief International is founded in 1948. It is a Santa Barbara-based, non-governmental humanitarian aid organization providing medical assistance without regard to politics, religious beliefs, or ethnicity to improve the health and lives of people in all 50 states and 70 countries who are affected by poverty or emergencies. 100% of every donation goes directly to its clinic partners and keeps its programs running. To learn more or to contribute, visit directrelief.org. Thank you.
Warning, what do you feel is one of the biggest challenges when it comes to designing for, say, environmental sustainability? I think one of the biggest challenges is to find materials and products that have a pretty small footprint, carbon footprint or um, environmental kind of footprint. So, for example, you when you do hardscape, hardscape is things like decks, patios, walkways, driveways. Um, you have you have issues with those, and. Um, and and then just to prevent or present the pros and cons of those to the client, and then they can make a determination which they want to go with. So, like for a driveway, for example, um, if you do a concrete driveway, that's a big impervious surface, which means water doesn't infiltrate, and there's a lot of runoff. Sure. So you have to think about that, um, and and you know, uh, give the client some options. You know, there are there are different kinds of uh, pavers that are actually pervious that can let water soak through. There are other kinds of materials that you can use. Um, it really depends on what the client wants to do, and but to provide to provide them with option and always stay on top of like the newest products that have the smallest environmental footprint. What type of products are you, for example, that would you? recommend but that you work with that you found really fits exactly what you your clients are looking for as far as a solution to, to Well, um, as I mentioned before, there, there are pavers that are, there's a ceramic product. Um, ceramic, interesting. Yes, um, and uh, these are called uh, eco-pavers. And eco-pavers eco are ceramic product, and um, you can drip water onto them. And I, I keep a sample in my trunk of my car to show clients. <laughs> um, because there's nothing as good as a demonstration, right? Sure. It's like, you yeah. know, if you have to let water infiltrate back into the ground table, and you bring in one of these bricks, essentially, and you pour water on it, and it soaks right in. That's pretty impressive. People, yeah. people really get excited about that kind of thing. Um, so products like that, I mean, that's just one of the environmental issues that you have to deal with when you're a landscape architect. And what I come across in California all the time are water issues. Not enough or too much. And so where, do, where does it go? And yeah. every municipality has different regulations about what you can do with stormwater, surface drainage, impervious surface. So. You really have to stay on top of the developments and the innovations in these areas to really give your clients all the options. Yeah, how do you do so? Do you actually reach out to, if you have a solution that you may have a, a specific materials for, or do you actually search um, to find out what may be new, cutting edge, and, and proven that would uh, help you achieve what you're looking to do? I have a good working relationship with material suppliers. Okay. And so I often will ask them, you know, what do you have? You know, what's new and what's coming up? And uh, and they're really on top of the products, too. So I usually go to my suppliers first and ask them to let me know what's new. I'll also do my own searching because sometimes I think I can find the answer yeah. uh, more quickly. Sure. And, if, and I do sometimes. I mean, there's a lot of information out there. And um, just being able to, like, Technology is so great. Just Google a, a question, and and something will pop up, and it's like, wow, I wonder if so and so has that, or can get me that, or a sample, or something. And you know, I like to try out different things, and so, um, so 
it's not just materials, but it's also plants as well. Okay. So um, yeah, how how what kind of plants? <laughs> there's so many I know, but yeah. Do you, how do you go about finding a drought resistant plant, for example? Just to... I'm a native plant lover. Okay. California is a hot spot of biodiversity. We've got something like six thousand native species of plants here. Six thousand. Six thousand, or so. Or so. <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, I know, it's a huge number, and I love seeing all of them because they all represent different ecosystems. And we have a lot of ecosystems in California, which leads to the biodiversity that we see. Um, and so what I do, to, I'd like to test these plants out for myself. I sometimes see them in botanic gardens, but I want to see how they can survive under my garden conditions, which I call uh, minimal maintenance okay. conditions. And so I'll, I'll look for native plants wherever I can find them. Sometimes I'll go to my favorite native plant nurseries all over uh, you know, the North Bay, South Bay, any place I can find a native plant nursery, I'll go see what they've got and you know, bring home everything from thistles <laughs> to... Uh, I love our, that word, thistle. And <laughs> there's actually a great thistle that you can plant that's a beautiful... Um, uh, it's a... Uh, Circium occidentalis, I think, it has a beautiful red blossom. It's a biennial. It's a two-year-old plant. Have one of those in my garden to see how it will do. It's stickery, but the blossom that I'm waiting for next year should be bright red. Very attractive to the pollinators. Can't wait to see it. Oh, nice. So, do you uh, do you take the uh, what you've some of the materials and some of the plants, and you plant them yourself, mm -hmm. test them out, and then you recommend them to your clients? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how how much of a... How is sustainability... Is it a large component of a lot of your clients if you kind of file through your client list, so to speak, and see, yeah, it is, it's important to them or important when you bring it to them? You know... I my job as a landscape architect is to educate people as well as to provide a design, hopefully both simultaneously. And um, sustainability is just something that is naturally part of what I do. And I, I'm upfront with clients about that and I, I say, you know, this is, you know, I want to provide you a good value, of course, for my design services. Part of that is to provide you with something that's not going to destroy the planet so that you can have a great backyard. Yeah. Or front yard. Or Do, front yard. Yeah. Yes, front yards, backyards, side yeah. yards. Yeah, I've seen I, on your uh, your website, I've seen the before and afters, and it's stunning. Thank you. L literally, just stunning what you see, what you've taken with space that just, like, there's no, like there's nothing. I don't know how you're able to visualize what it can be, but when you, when you see what you've done with it, it's really quite remarkable. What has some of the responses been from, from people you've worked with? Oh. My, my favorite response is when they're completely speechless, when they see it, uh, the transformation. So the response is no response, but more of an emotion. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, I, I had a project recently go in that, um, well, I always try to exceed my clients' expectations, but when I exceed my own expectations, I went out to this project, and it was a very small space, a tiny condo patio, maybe 19 by 17 feet, and it was so beautiful that it made me cry. It made you cry? <laughs> it made me cry. It was so beautiful. Oh, that's awesome to do work that actually makes yourself cry. I know. Uh, maybe <laughs> talk about your age. Yeah, it was, uh, it was quite a treat. Um, but, you know, it's, it, 
for me, you know, people say, how do you visualize a space? And it all starts out with the basic form follows function, you know, and it all flows from that. And um, for me, design is not a linear process. It's not like I draw the site map and then I do this and draw. It's kind of like as I'm drawing in, I also do uh, site measuring. And so when I'm doing that, I'm simultaneously designing because things will come up that just seem like they want to be there. And so it all kind of happens all at the same time. It's a process that's shortened for me from going from like doing form studies and all that to kind of compressed all at once. And I just let it do its thing, and this is what happens. People are are amazed. Wow, so nature has ordained you an architect, <laughs> not, just, not just your credentials. Okay, yeah. I'll take that. Oh, you'll take that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really good, especially when you can visualize it before, and then actually it, it, it becomes a reality, truly. I think it's kind of cliche when to it, say that, but it really... Yeah, when it comes out better than you even imagined. You know, and you walk, you walk into a space that you've only, it's only existed in your head, and you're actually in the physical space. The first landscape that I designed and had a client actually build, when I walked through that space, it was like stepping inside my own brain. <laughs> With pollinators? No. With pollinators, there were all yeah. kinds of interesting native plants that went into that as well. Yeah, I really yeah. like that idea of the pollinators. Go, tell me a little bit more about you know, that. It, I, I... You know, the pollinators bring a garden to life. And pollinators, of course, are the butterflies, and which are inadvertent pollinators. Um, hummingbirds, also inadvertent pollinators, because they, you know, they take their, their beaks and they stick them down uh, tubular flowers, which I like. Yeah. And they brush pollen with their foreheads. So they don't, they're not after the pollen, they're after the nectar, but they will pollinate inadvertently. And flowers have evolved to have these tubular structures to en entice the little birds. Um, but the bees, yeah, I know. Um, it's, you know, it's a never-ending story to watch the interaction because even the bees, you have the big fat bubble bees, and you know, they, they see these tubular flowers, and one of the things that they like to do is like to steal the nectar, but they can't get down into the tube, so they'll bite the end of the flower where the, the connects to the plant. And it's like, you know, it's like, how do they know how to do that? Yeah. And Only the, if we uh, here at the uh, Modern Architect would get so excited about biting bumblebees. <laughs> really, but but it, it has so much relevance and purpose into Absolutely. Um, our lives. It really does. Uh, I'm going to say on that subject a bit about bees. I don't know much about uh, them other than their, their importance to us and, and the pollinators. How would... How, how much more of an impact do you think if you had more pollinators around a specific city? Would it actually help the, the entire community? It's hard to say. Uh, there are estimates that probably 35 to 38 percent of agricultural crops are pollinated by wild bees. Um, honeybees are brought in to do pollination, but they're not as efficient uh, pollinators as wild bees. Uh, honeybees are kind of lazy. And they're na not native. They're not native. I wasn't aware of that. They're okay. not native, and there have been problems with, you know, uh, declining numbers, colony collapse, and things like that. Um, with the, the wild pollinators, um, 
you know, they're, if they're uh, pollinating up to 38% of our agricultural crops, that's not insignificant. 30% of our agriculture. 38%. 38%, so almost 40%. Right. And we, we do know that pollinators are on a world, worldwide decline, especially, well, an indicator species that biologists like to look at are butterflies. And we know, like, the monarch populations are drastically reduced. Is that for, not convenience, I don't know, for lack of word, why, why just the butterflies? Is it easier to track? Or? It, it definitely is. Okay. Um, they're just easier to see. Um, and um, so it's a little bit more obvious to people. Bees haven't been studied as intensively, I think. Um, they're, we just don't know a lot about, you know, the secret lives of the native bees. Yeah. Uh, but the... There are lots of really uh, great books out there. Um, there was a one that was uh, published fairly recently um, uh, uh, by some researchers at UC Berkeley, actually. Okay. I believe it's Berkeley. Recent as in what, the last 2014. five years? 2014. Okay. Yeah, I think it's uh, Bees and Blooms of California, I think, something like that. I'd have to, I don't remember the exact title, but um, where they actually had people go out and look at uh, urban gardens and look at the different kinds of bees that they were seeing there um, and seeing what kinds of bees were going to different plants because in, in many gardens, and I, I see this when I walk around the neighborhoods in Palo Alto, some beautiful, stunning homes, and then I walk past these front yards. They look great, but there's, there's nothing in bloom. And that drives me crazy because it could be so much more. I mean, it might be providing some larval food for caterpillars, but it's not providing nectar. It's not providing pollen. And many of our plants are, are dependent on pollinators for reproduction. They're not wind-pollinated. So there's, and you don't really need a ton of plants to attract a few pollinators to your yard. You could get away with two or three to give them something. Okay. so that they don't have to go so far. If you have a lot of habitat fairly close together, they prefer that because it's more efficient for them to pollinate rather than to have to, you know, travel half a mile to find something. Really? So now if you look at, um, we'll throw out some numbers, say for every 10 homes that you see, how many of them uh, are lacking? Probably nine. It, I look Nine out of ten are Yes, lacking. I specifically look for those sorts of things when I go past houses. I run around the neighborhoods quite a bit. <laughs> Just like you did when you were 11, yes. right? But not a neighborhood, but the... Uh, but the, the nature, yeah. yes. And so um, I just... I'm astonished sometimes because this isn't... Homes are an opportunity to provide little islands for uh, pollinators. They're not doing it yet. Uh, this is The Modern Architect on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Our guest is Juanita Salisbury, Ph.D. and Principal of Juanita Salisbury Landscape Architecture. In the last 100 years, we have lost 90% of the world's population of cheetahs. They're the most endangered big cat in Africa. Every day is a fight for survival. Your support for Dr. Lori Marker and the Cheetah Conservation Fund can help save these magnificent cats. And saving the cheetah is part of a larger goal that helps local farmers, children, and entire communities. Your donation will allow the CCF to continue its innovative research and education programs. To learn more or to donate, visit www.cheetah.org. Thank you. On the subject of 9 out of 10 homes are lacking pollinators within their front gardens, and that, you're not seeing the, the, the 
back. Uh, is there anything that you do about it? I mean, could you leave a, a message, to write a personal note like people do if you park in the wrong spot? Uh, <laughs> or uh, I just can't imagine. Say this, this, this could, for example, listen to this. Uh, if you could cut that, say that nine out of ten became four, uh, five out of the ten had the pollinators in there. They're at least in front garden. What would that do for a community? What would it do for the environment? Well, the first thing it does is provide biodiversity. Okay. And uh, I think it also provides opportunities to observe nature uh, more up close and personal than you you might if you didn't have um, uh, bees and butterflies heading into your yard. But what I'm hoping, like for the pollinator garden that's in a very public space, is that um, people will become more aware of this project. It's in a very visible spot um, okay. and a major uh, thoroughfare going into Yeah, where's town. the location? It's, um, I know you said it, but please Right, it's it. at the corner of Embarcadero and Lewis Road. So as you're coming into town on the east side of town, and it's a big space. It's about uh, 200 feet long by 20 feet wide, so 4,000 square feet of garden space. 4,000. 4,000 square feet. I've managed to get some boulders donated for, you know, to yeah. keep cars from driving up where they park next to it. And we're going to have some logs for bees to nest in, some open dirt areas, because a lot of bees actually nest in the ground as solitary creatures. Really? Yes. I wasn't aware of that. Yep. Wild bees and, wild and bees. honeybees, or just the um, wild bees primarily? Wild bees uh, nest in the ground. They also nest in wood and twigs. And so when you see a, a native bee, basically, you know, you might see a male or female. If you see a female, she is basically gathering up nectar and pollen to make a little loaf of bread for her larvae. And she makes that up, lays an egg, sticks them in there, and walls that off, lays another egg, and so on and so forth. So native bees are not really interested in stinging you because <laughs> they don't, they're not social. They don't have, for the most part, they don't have a, a hive to, to, like, defend them. So... They're busy provisioning their nest. They're not, you know, they're not really, they're, not, they're actually quite gentle. So a lot of people are afraid of bees, and there's no reason for it. Yeah. You know, just yeah. Don't, no, I've been stung so many times, but I just expect it. I have a lot, but I don't know if everyone else does. Usually they scurry, and you see them outdoors. Yeah, you know, um, you just, I mean, a lot of people get stung because they sit on bees or, st- or step on them, and because they're, you know, wildflowers are low to the ground, sometimes you step on them. It happens. Um, but so I'm hoping that our neighborhood will, and our neighborhood has been actually very accepting of the project, and we've gotten a lot of interest. Oh, in do you, how do you invite them? Do you have a, you know, a lunch social? Or ah, we have here in Palo Alto. We've got our neighborhoods divided up so that there's a listserv for each neighborhood that you can get on for email, and I blasted it out to our neighborhood association as well as. Our very, very local, like, our, even our street has a listserv that we email these things out. So I let everybody know. Um, I tell people I would be happy to come and talk to you about it, happy to come and speak to your, uh, your, your Girl Scout troop, Boy Scout troop, your garden club, whatever. And I've met a lot of people who are very interested, and our neighborhood is very interested in uh, getting this done and helping to maintain it which is also another big thing. Um, I'm really looking forward to that aspect as well because for me it's all information to see in these conditions how do these plants perform. I know they perform well in my garden, 
but how do they perform in this very visible area that's very open? How is it doing as a pollinator habitat? And then if this works out really well, maybe I can poke some of the other neighborhoods in getting them interested in doing the same thing to their islands of opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of pollinating, um, a, a lot of people uh, are not as aware of the benefit of a landscape architect for the, either their home or even, even developers for their businesses. Um, I've looked at some of the research here that it returns, it can return, am I accurate, almost 100% of whatever if it's done well, done well. Okay. I, yes, if it's done well, I've seen numbers that suggest that the return on investment can be 100%. 100%. Yes, but the return on investment, I think, is in yeah. usable space and enjoyment. Okay. You know, That's immeasurable. So well, yeah. well, that know, could be measurable. Yeah, yeah. and um, I mean, it, if you can really increase the usable space of your property, it makes it more valuable. And here in California, the cost per square foot is somewhat higher than in other places of the country. Um, and what I tell clients um, is to, you know, consider about 10% of your home's value for the landscape. But for 10% of your home's value, you're getting over 50% of your property improved, if, depending on the size of the lot, of sure. course. Fifty percent of your property it's, is improved. You're uh, right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's about right. If yeah. you have a six thousand square foot lot and your home is three thousand square feet. Yeah. Okay. So and businesses as well. Do you see businesses? I know unless you're going through business parks, but do you see them as well where they could be uh, utilizing their space more to actually attract potentially more tenants, um, or, or or even be another pollinator? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. I think that there are things that can make uh, businesses more visible to uh, potential customers. Um, I actually did a commercial planting um, up in the North Bay in which I really incorporated a lot of color and made the, the planting really stand out. Oh, yeah. um, not like anything else that was in that area. And that did seem to improve the business. Is that, that right? Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. That was a fun project. Yeah. Well, it's, it's sometimes I would <laughs> think sometimes uh, the buildings, a lot of the buildings were built 50, 60 years ago that if you, if you do the uh, landscape, Mm-hmm. Very well, as you said, that it, it, it may even look better than the actual building. Does that ever happen? I know I'm going to be, maybe I'm insulting, I'm going to get some emails on this, but <laughs> can it actually look nicer than some of the structures that they actually are around? I, I think so. Um, okay. Yeah, I think that the, if you think about the landscape as a frame for a building. A frame for a building, okay. Yeah, um, but it's really, the landscape is kind of the, um, There's a it's, slight it's, pause, it's a, but it's for, it's, a, it's for good thought. Yes, it's a, I'm thinking of the word context. Context, okay. And um, context sets the stage, essentially, um, for whatever. So how are you going to set the stage for your business? So, okay. you know, and setting the stage, again, we go back to behavior, you know, back to psychology, yeah. which is all about behavior. Yeah. And... Yeah, I've, I've designed parking lots before, which is kind of fun, you okay. know, because then you get to deal with cars and big things and big walkways and yeah. big lights. And So yeah. do you see the change in people? Uh, we talked about this a little bit early, but it can change people's lives it can for the better. It can completely change people's lives. Yeah. Um, how you feel in a space is definitely impacted by what's around you and, you know, whether it's a shady a shady sidewalk, for example, something as small as that can make a difference between which side of the street people are using. 
Okay. You and I, you and I spoke earlier about um, how it can ch- help change lives, and particularly we were speaking of a school where the um, uh, the parents would wait for their uh, wait for their children to get out yes. and pick them up, and how uh, they were lined up. Tell us a little bit about that again. Yeah, that was so, a great story. Yeah. Um, so I did some teaching um, up at the the Santa Rosa Junior College, in which I taught a landscape design class. Okay. And I took the class out. We were designing uh, some outdoor spaces for a school board and um, their their administrative offices, which was right next to an elementary school. And so I brought the students out there to measure the site, but it was kind of the end of the day when the parents were arriving to pick up their kids. And so I dragged the students closer and I said, okay, guys, I want you to observe what people are doing. What are the parents doing? And, you know, they looked around, they're like, oh, they're all, like, parked along the curb. No one is getting out of their cars. It's like, watch what the kids do. All the kids get out of school, walk straight from the building to the cars, and they all drive off. And I said, now imagine if you had provided, if there was a courtyard here with maybe a fountain, some benches, some shade, maybe parents would have gotten out of the cars, started talking to the other parents, the kids would come play in the fountain, there would be these interactions that would not have happened otherwise. And at that point, one of my students looks at me, and the look on her face, she said, you can change people's lives. And that is the power of design that I wanted them to discover. Yeah. And to me, that's for, I love teaching just for that, yeah. to show people the power of design. And then training designers. Yeah, yeah. how's that one? How's uh-huh. that training it's great because just I, I would tell the students, just by having this class, you know more already about what works than your clients do. Take that with you and never doubt your ability. Just that one class had more actionable. Absolutely. Oh, wow. So yeah. are you continue to teach? or uh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I know you do as in practice because it's yeah, what I, you do. I wish but... I had more time for teaching because I yeah. really love it. Because yeah. I really love to train designers. And I've had students um, recently even get back in touch with me and thank me for setting their course in this direction and really just like giving them the benefit of my experience and my knowledge and just kind of empowering them to, to move forward and change other lives. So, you know, paying it forward. Yeah. And you, you do this with their, all of your clients, all of your interactions. Um, Absolutely. You're still doing that. So, yeah. yeah, you mentioned something a little earlier on show that you're kind of like cultivating the garden of your mind <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you're yes. seeing it in your mind's eye yeah am I saying it yeah okay. I, I see it there and then make it real and you know I, I like to make things happen um, and that's a key thing to being a designer and to uh, really getting things done if you start off with the, the perception of something that can't be done you won't even try and I run across naysayers quite a bit. When um, you say quite a bit, is it for... <laughs> when people don't know how to do things, they instantly think okay. they can't be done. If say they, that again. I love that line. If people when... don't know how to do things, they think it can't be done. Okay. And so they don't, they don't try. Okay. So you're willing to take that risk. So you're rather fearless in this, as much as you can be fearless. Yes. Okay. And you have to... Do you think you have to, or it's... Uh, no, not necessarily. It kind of comes naturally. Oh really? <laughs> okay. How's it? How so? Like, what do you do? For, um, is this all you do? Do you run? Do you bike? Do you swim? Do you <clears> fish? <throat> <or what? laughs> 
Um, I do a lot of different things. I do a lot of hiking okay. um, for inspiration because I like to see different ecosystems. I get a lot of inspiration uh, from the, the beautiful open spaces that we have around here. And we have a lot of great hiking. Yeah. And, and you have here uh, your gorilla. I do, <laughs> yes. I always put those in the backpack. And what do you call them again? Your, um, the, uh, they're seed bombs. Seed bombs, and they are, the, what, what does it contain? Um, you know, you can get some great native wildflower seeds. Okay, wildflower seeds. With yeah. a little compost and clay. Compost and clay. And you kind of wet it down a little bit. You it's put some moist. seeds in there and make a little ball, and then you let it dry out. You, you're good to go. And you just place it where you... You just toss it. Toss it into a location. Excellent. <laughs> this is The Modern Architect, KZSU 90.1 FM Stanford. We are talking with Juanita Salisbury, Ph.D. and Principal of Juanita Salisbury Landscape Architecture. Clean Copper Radio covers global hot topics while entertaining you with current music from around the world, seasoned with some golden oldies. Your host, Soulmation, addresses business topics via talk, celebrates culture via music, and discusses unresolved socio-environmental and economic issues via Clean Copper. True. Don't miss out on Clean Copper Radio, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on KZSU Stanford. What project did, uh, have you worked on recently that is your favorite? Or are they all favorites, or do you have one or two that are in particular that are like, oh, you've got to see this, here's where it is, and you'll be amazed? Well, are you at liberty to say so? <laughs> Without offending a client. Um, typically, what my favorite project is is the one I'm currently working on. Okay. Um, Which is? Um, well, there's one that's just uh, being finished right now. It's just finishing up construction in which we did a big sunken garden. And there wasn't a sunken garden before, but we created one because in the backyard there was a huge uh, live oak tree that was buried under about 18 inches of soil. You just don't want to do that with an oak. The oaks like uh, some room to move, and they, well, they don't move. They like to spread out, and they don't like things planted they underneath. They didn't know Yes, well. <laughs> and uh, so we did some excavation out around the, the oak, and that created a sunken garden area. And um, in that era, of course, a pollinator garden. Um, and then we did a beautiful patio with some gorgeous slate um, and but that client they were they were wonderful to work with they I you know and this is what I do I'll, I'll look at a space and I told them I said you know your landscape is going to make your house look older your landscape will look brand new paint your house first so they had me pick out paint colors and we painted got the house painted and now the landscape is just about finished and it looks like a brand new property. That makes sense. Is not the uh, the house dwelling or uh, facility a part of the environment itself? Absolutely. Okay. And that way you can color coordinate everything. I mean, the house was um, it, colors that really weren't going to work with the landscape colors. The slate was a very strong color choice. And that's what we started with for inspiration. And 
it's not rocket science to get things to be harmonious in a design. So basically... It actually sounds maybe a little harder, but that's my perspective. <laughs> well, this, here's an ancient designer tr trick. Okay. Um, so you pick, your pick, you pick your inspiration piece, whether it's a piece of art, a piece of stone. In this case, it was a piece of slate. And we chose colors from that piece of slate. And everything else fell into place from there. So that's, is it, you do that with every project really much? Or yeah. you, you would recommend to our audience that they do that as well? I find um, a piece that will be the keystone for the harmonious components of the design. Keystone for the harmonious components of the design. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Or an inspiration piece. In inspiration vernacular. piece. Vernacular. And does it go full circle when you're completed with the project? It, do, you ever, do you see it often? Yes. It does? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, when you look at a design and everything is in harmony, it just feels good to look at. Yeah. Harmony is a, a, a difficult to achieve, at least from looking through architecture. But maybe you have a different analysis. Well, for, okay. you know, I'm trained. Um, okay. And there are rules to creating harmonious design. These are things that I, I teach my students. Um, there, there are rules. I mean, rules it's, to create harmonious design. Yes. That's awesome. Yep. Okay. Yeah. No, the science has been worked out, and so it's basically, it's like form follows function. It's not magic, it just looks like it. It's not magic, it just looks <laughs> like it. What do you feel is the most important, maybe uh, one of the more important roles of a, of a, of a landscape architect, and, and, and why? Well, uh, I think it's my, my personal philosophy for... Uh, what I think is the most important thing I do is to enhance life. Enhance life. Enhance life. Not just for my clients, but uh, life on the planet, life for myself, um, life, the life of beauty. You life know? Of beauty. Yeah, you know, I didn't, uh, from our show, I wanted to do this, and this is one of the questions. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about, um, it is, uh, you love beauty. Correct? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I've, I've not heard that phrase before. You just, wherever it is, is or it doesn't have to be just in the garden, or is it, you just... I I love beautiful things. I, okay. I like harmonious design, um, beautiful colors, you know, nature in its spectacular glory. Uh, you know, it, I it's it's part of the design brain, I think, that never... Sleep. It never shuts off. It never, it never shuts off. It wants to see more and more all the time. Give me more. Wow. Well, there's a, there's a great quote, I think, that that segues into. Mm -hmm. um, uh, tell me what your thoughts about this. And, and elaborate, if you will. Uh, it's by Marcel Proust. The, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new lands, but seeing with new eyes. Oh, yes. What's your thoughts? Oh, yes. Um, that's one of the, the fun sort of hidden treats of design that you provide for the client. And this is something that, um, that I sneak into design is they won't notice everything all at once, but they'll discover it. So there'll be little things that I will put into a design that they won't see until after they've spent some time there looking at things. And, um, whether it's uh, following a line of the house and then pulling that same line into the landscape and not telling them that that's what I did and then having them discover that later. So it's little things like that. So um, it's kind of like providing opportunities for uh, things to reveal themselves 
to the client. And sometimes it's on purpose, what I do. Sometimes it's accidental, yeah. which surprises me, but I'll take it. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's why it's so important to have um, as much richness in a design as possible. And that includes enhancing the biodiversity because there's nothing richer than nature. There just isn't. True. Well, we can keep discovering and trying to see if that's true. I think we'll find out that that, that is. Um, what, how, well, you mentioned you kind of sneak it in. Is, mm -hmm. is it because you can't always fully share exactly, you know, you have a design, you the people you work with have an idea in mind, you have an idea in mind, and you work collaboratively to achieve that. Um, how is, what sort of challenge or challenges that, do you experience when you first meet with your clients about what they're looking for? Um, the, I think the challenge is to um, just educate them about the process. Um, when you transform an outdoor space, um, a lot of people are just thinking that it's a bunch of plants, you know, and, you know, you pick up a plant at some store and it's a certain price and they think that it's you know a relatively easy thing but landscape construction is big construction we get big equipment out there um, you know backhoes and whatever large equipment which I'd love to uh, actually offer oh you do someday. so you would, you would oh, I, you... I would like to okay. I haven't gotten the opportunity but it wouldn't okay. it be fun to get a backhoe and start digging <laughs> um, Sometimes some, someday someday maybe yeah. um, so you know it's but I've seen a lot of construction, so it's not really a scary thing to me. But I mean, when people's yards get dug up and there's, it's a mess for a few weeks, that's a scary thing. So you just have to, you have to prepare them for a process. And people don't really realize how long the process takes. You know, it's not, it's not fast. Um, design, you know, we go through several iterations. I will give them a plan showing, you know, the elements that they want. And we'll make revisions to that, and we'll get some pricing, you know. So it's, there are steps, it, and then, then you, then construction. I mean, it really can take a long time to get to construction, and then construction takes a while. So it's not instantaneous. I mean, when people think about landscape, they think, you know, go and get a little pack of plants and plant them in the garden, you're done. <laughs> that's, that's quick, or planting up a pot full of flowers. But... You know, the totality or the, the... The totality of it, and, you know. So I, I, I try not to overwhelm them, the client, you know. And so basically what I do is, uh, you know, I'll ask a few uh, particular questions that kind of key in on the things that I need to do to figure out what they want and just listen to what they want. And they're pretty receptive to the ideas that you envision. Absolutely. And based on what they're, they're looking for, too. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I will change a design to what they want if it's not illegal in some way. Sure. Um, or if it's unsafe. Um, you know, and if they want certain things that I don't agree with, which happens, um, yeah, at the end of the day, I don't live there. They live there. And, you know, they get to see it all the time. I don't. So I defer to the client. If you want to have the brown gravel versus the gray gravel, you know, even if it clashes 
with the, the cool colored concrete, that's fine. You know, not what I would do, but this is my recommendation and I always have reasons why I specify things. You know, the, the light colored concrete goes with the blue pebbles because they're both cool colors. And so that's a, a thing about design is that, and I would teach my students this as well, is that you always have justifications for what you provide in terms of design alternatives and options and solutions. It's like, well, why is this doing that? Because this works better. It will save you money. It's good for the environment. It allows groundwater to be recharged, etc. Yeah, so you take a scientific objective perspective in addition to your passion. It's pretty... Oh, yes. Pretty well, yep. that's pretty complete. Yeah, I'm still a scientist. Yeah, okay. Yes. Among it, other things. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it sounds like that. Now, do you also use technology in your, uh, Absolutely. your process, and do you show uh, your, your clients, uh, the city, what you, you know, what you envision, and then... Mm-hmm. Pre- present it to them, at least in a right. CAD form? or, a, or Right, yeah, computer-aided drafting is yeah. a wonderful um, tool for design purposes. It's a nice platform to be able to share your work, to record changes, just to keep a record, um, and it's super fast and easy to use, and it has a lot of different applications. Yeah. How close does it come to replicating what they'll actually see when, it, when, it's, when it's complete? I think it's pretty close. Yeah. I would say. I mean, the, the drawings are scaled um, so that, uh, you know, it's like a quarter inch equals a foot, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it, it's a scaled drawing. You can figure out quantities, lineal feet, square footages. Um, occasionally I will do um, sketches, which are, are pretty close as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the sketches, trans- to your clients, some of them see it like, oh, I get it. Just from a sketch on, yes. okay, the proverbial napkin. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I'll do sketches for people because not everybody can read a plan. Sure. So they can't read the plan, so you'll do the sketches and right. kind of right. envision this. Mm-hmm. Juanita, it's been a pleasure having you here today. We've been honored. Well, thank you so much, Tom. It's been an honor, really, to talk about something that is the love of my life. Excellent. I'm happy for that, too. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dior. Our guest today has been Juanita Salisbury, Ph.D. and Principal of Juanita Salisbury Landscape Architecture. We've been talking today about the joy of investing in nature and the value landscape architecture can bring to our homes, communities, and businesses. For more information, please go to www.com jsalisburyla.com that's www.jsalisburyla.com join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect building influencer or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities communities and lives the modern architect is recorded at stanford university studios in palo alto california and is a production of kzsu radio the producer is Michael Longoria, recording engineer Akshay Jaggi, assistant engineer McGregor Joyner, and we're all assisted by Bryce Carter. The executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. That's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Modern Architect.